1: Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of Stock Doc. I'm Dr. Nigel Finch and today my guest from Lower Manhattan in New York City is Alex Radke. Alex is the US General Manager of Operations for ASX listed company Heramed, whose ASX ticker code HMD, operates in the telehealth solution space. It has some digital tools and uh, comprehensive home care-based approach that really focuses on caring for pregnant women. Um, I want to walk through uh, Alex's role, um, which is very key at the moment in terms of their US market entry strategy. But uh, Alex, before we get to uh, the business of Heramed, given that you're in New York City and these are very troubling times with COVID-19, I'm just wondering whether you could take a peek out of your Uh, window there and tell us what you see in New York right now.
0: Uh, Thanks, Nigel, and thanks for having me on. Um, You know, it's a bit of a strange time here in New York City. Typically the city here is filled with a vibrancy and an energy that's really unmatched anywhere in the world. And so normally you're seeing tourist destinations such as Times Square, Soho, or the World Trade Center just bustling with tourists. And the other day I took a bike ride and a run uh, up through those places and they're completely empty. And so it's got a bit of an eerie feel to it all. And actually, if I look out my window, I can see the World Trade Center, and um, you know it offers a glimmer of hope. But at the same time, you notice just the lack of energy uh, that exists here. And you walk down in Soho, normally where there's all the high-end shops and everything, and there's boarded-up windows almost all over the place. And so it's got a very, very strange feeling here. And uh, you know it's been that way for a couple of weeks. Um, if you watch the governor's press conferences, it seems to be that we're nearing the peak. And so. I think there's a glimmer of optimism over on the hillside now, but uh, certainly a strange time to be in New York City. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Alex, look, thank you for that. Um, those observations. Um, I want to just get into into Heramed, and um, uh, but before we do that, uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about your experience in the U.S. U.S. healthcare system because. You've had uh, some pretty varied roles across the whole spectrum in U.S. healthcare. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. So I've got sort of a uh, very atypical and circuitous route to where I am today. Um, I had a degree in systems engineering. My first job, which is always my kind of fun fact that icebreaker things, is that I was actually a coal miner, was my first job before I got to healthcare. Uh, then I did some management consulting, and then I jumped into healthcare, where I worked for the biggest health system in the state of New York, Northwell Health. Uh, Northwell's got... Uh, 23 hospitals, $12 billion top line of revenue, it's the largest private employer in the state of New York with about 73,000 employees. And so when I first started there, I was doing a lot of projects uh, on the operational side. So I got exposure in the operating rooms, I've been in emergency departments, uh, I've done projects through hospitals, transitioning programs from one hospital to another, uh, as well as helping any kind of uh, operational based project where we're looking at some kind of efficiencies Um, And then I was fortunate where I got to jump over to sort of the for-profit side. I joined the corporate development of the Ventures Arm, uh, where we were fortunate to actually invest off the balance sheet into early stage companies. Um, So I got to help startups kind of navigate uh, the complex bureaucracy of U.S. healthcare. And so I got a keen understanding of what it's like to be a resource-constrained small startup uh, coming into a big behemoth that is quite complex and bureaucratic. And uh, in addition to that, I oversaw international healthcare, so I got to see what it was like to work in other markets and see how other countries uh, set up their healthcare infrastructure, which I think really plays into Harriman's uh, U.S. market entry strategy here, because it really, you know, the U.S. market is quite different for a developed country, uh, not so much on the provider side. You know, for the for most Western countries, we deliver care from doctor to patient relatively similar, but the really big difference is on the payer side, and that's where I think the key focus in this presentation. And uh, our US market strategy uh, really plays into that.
1: Very good. To to what extent has your solution been clinically validated in the US and and what approvals have you obtained for the US market?
0: Yes, we've been very, very fortunate. Um, We have partnered with the Mayo Clinic, which those outside of healthcare that are unfamiliar, the Mayo Clinic uh, is the number one healthcare system in the world. Uh, it's certainly the number one in the U.S. It also operates a number of international facilities for well-known uh, companies all over the world, and so it's sort of the gold standard of care, and uh, it even has its own Netflix documentary uh, chronologing the, um, the history of the Mayo Clinic, and it's quite unique in its history there, so we're very fortunate to have them as partners. Uh, they started on a project called OB Nest, which uh, I, myself, am a single bachelor, I do not have kids, so I've never had the pregnancy process uh, experience myself. But from what I understand, it's quite cumbersome with a number of visits to the physical doctor's office uh, before you actually deliver the child. And so what Mayo wanted to see is if they could actually deliver a number of those visits instead of in person to it virtually. And they proved that thesis. They showed that there was no decrease in clinical outcomes and there was actually an increase in satisfaction. And so having that partnership and being able to leverage and utilize sort of their learnings from that as a partner has been tremendous. Uh, In addition, we also just, back in November, got FDA clearance for our device. And so we have sort of one of the first in the market that is digitally connected and enabled wireless fetal heart rate monitors. And so with the FDA clearance back in November, that allows now for professional use. And alongside with our partners at the Mayo Clinic, we're currently doing additional clinical trials and testing to resubmit to the FDA again, to then become the first of its kind to allow for at-home use. So that means a pregnant woman could be sitting at home and she can collect the, the fetal heart rate of her unborn child and get medical grade quality data that then could be submitted to a provider and completely autonomously on their own. And that would be uh, the first of its kind to be able to do so.
1: It's a, It really is an amazing advancement in, in technology. And we can see that there's likely to be, you know, aside from the convenience factors, but but very much, you know, reductions in cost and um, uh, but without any detriment to the maternity care outcomes. Well, that, that's certainly the thesis. So it's very encouraging to see. And I think Mayo is an incredible partner for you to be working with. Um, for many companies that are tackling market entry strategies in the US, whether they're in healthcare or not, um, some say that a successful market penetration strategy for the US really involves building 52 separate strategies, really one for every state and jurisdiction. I mean, to what extent are you likely to adopt different strategies to deal with the enormity of the market?
0: Yeah, so the U.S. is quite a big market. I mean, you're talking about just under 4 million births a year. And the maternity space is about $111 billion dollars. And US healthcare at large is $3.6 trillion, which roughly 20% of our GDP. And so it's just a, it's a very, very large market. And I think when you talk about market entry strategies, particularly in healthcare, there's a bit of a challenge. You see, at the federal level, we set guidelines and policies that basically set the baseline regulatory environment. But then each individual state then can act additional regulation. So what does that mean? So that means that a doctor that is licensed in the state of New York, cannot treat a patient from an additional state. Now, when telehealth became a thing, that obviously became quite a challenge because you can't really dictate whether or not a patient takes their cell phone across state lines. So they've sort of advanced that a little bit, but it's still a bit of a gray area. Now, fortunately, for what we're looking at here, there are ways around that. And you're right. There is sort of a 50-state strategy that we could do. And that's sort of phase one and something that we're looking at, uh, you know, advancing the relationship with the Mayo Clinic because they're Really focused in in one major metropolitan area. But we're also evaluating opportunities to look at national telehealth players that would then be able to partner with that to then look at an entire national plan. And I think the latter piece of that is if we sequence this correctly, we can get to that piece. And that's really where the commercial upside is.
1: So the US market has an absolutely, you know, staggering size, um, you know, $111 billion uh, just in maternity health. But I've understood from your announcement that uh, the U.S. also has the highest maternal uh, mortality rate in the developed world. I mean, that just seems, you know, it's rather, you know, incomprehensible given um, what we understand in the West to be the U.S. healthcare system. Can you tell us about what are the drivers behind this?
0: Yeah, and I think it's quite, uh, it's quite upsetting as a human to be able to, and as an American, Uh, to be in that statistic, and I think that is just one of the biggest drivers for innovation. Um, I think there's a couple drivers that are happening to that. One is we have these issues in maternity care deserts. Um, We unfortunately have certain, mostly rural places, that just don't have the financial capabilities to maintain a full-size hospital or maintain a full-size workforce, and therefore have been closing at record pace. And so you're sort of seeing this aggregation now of hospitals only in major metropolitan cities, which if you live far away, is quite a challenge to get to. And so that's number one. Uh, Number two is looking at those that are coming in the pipeline of medical students getting into the OB profession and looking at the current trends of the number of births. We don't have enough OB doctors that are going to be able to service future births. And so those are sort of the driving forces that we're looking at now, that technology can obviously play a huge role in both supplementing the OB doctor and then also being able to reach those in rural places that don't have great access to care. And so that's sort of where this technology piece, I think, comes into play. Now, the challenge is going to be the regulatory environment behind it. But one of the sort of the uh, you know, unfortunate positive externalities of the COVID crisis has been the rapid deregulation of some of these uh, telehealth policies that sort of restricted uh, the adoption of telehealth models and these new care models. Now, whether or not the federal government is going to continue those after is yet to be seen. Although I can tell you anecdotally from talking to some of my doctor friends, they have been thoroughly impressed with the convenience of being able to use virtual care. You know, These were people that were traditionally resistant to using these new ways of communicating to patients, but now that they've been forced to, they're sort of saying, well, I don't know why I don't do this more often. It's kind of great to sit here in my living room and be able to see patients all day. So I'm, I'm kind of curious myself to see on the other side of this COVID crisis, you know, what the new status quo is. Um, but unfortunately with those, those maternal outcomes, uh, that's something we have to take a big, hard look at as a country and to be able to do better. And I think that with the Heromet solution, it will allow us to reach more people that traditionally, you know, the face-to-face visits have been unable to reach.
1: So certainly the technology seems destined to be successful. You've got expectant mothers who would, for a variety of reasons, look to adopt this convenience and um, potentially cost could be one of them. You've got doctors who are um, starting to see the ease of use and the reliability of the system. So all of those factors are good, but at the end of the day, someone's got to pay for it. Can you talk about the, the payer model in the U.S. And, and, and how that works in terms of healthcare reimbursements and insurance and the like?
0: Well, it depends how much time you have because the U.S. system here is one of the most complex of any developed world. In fact, it is the most complex. I'll go ahead and make that statement. Um, you know, the U.S. as a developed country, it does not fully guarantee insurance for its citizens. So there's a segment of the population in the U.S., it's roughly about 9%, that is completely uninsured. They don't have health insurance. Then you have the the health insurance that the government provides. And most people have heard of it. It's Medicare and Medicaid, although not all citizens are eligible for those. So for Medicare, that's usually 65 plus. For Medicaid, it usually means tested, so lower socioeconomic status or disability. And so then for the plurality of the citizenship, most of us get our health insurance through our employer. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that especially with the, the rapid uh, unemployment rate that has just happened because of this, a lot of people's health insurance is directly tied to their employment, which limits the options. So if you wanted to follow the money and where it goes and who is most likely to drive change in terms of the cost of care, it's going to be the large employers. And that's what we've seen through digital health now over the years. It's been the large employers because they are fully liable for all the claims that their employees take. Now, what does that mean? At the beginning of the year, the HR department of a large employer basically gets to design their own insurance program. They get to look at the demographics of their employees and they get to design the benefits they wanna include in their health insurance plans. But then as that year goes on and their employees use that healthcare, that company is fully liable to pay for all those claims. So now on the balance sheet, their number one expense for personnel is salary their number two expense is health insurance. It is extremely in their benefit to not only drive down the cost, but then also obviously have a healthy workforce, you know, make sure that they're productive, make sure that they're returning to work, making sure that they're contributing to the company. So over the course of the the long enough commercial cycle, our ultimate goal is to get to that level where we find sort of a early adopter that is looking to drive maternal benefits to their employees, and be able to get down. So that's sort of the, the, the payer piece of this is what really confuses outsiders uh, that aren't used to the healthcare market. It's incredibly complex, um, but ultimately, ultimately you want to get to the insurers because they're the ones with the deepest pockets and they're the ones with the motivating force to drive down the cost of care. Yep.
1: So no doubt this you know employer provided insurance coverage is, is, is really where you want to be targeting but right now you're you're on the ground in the US you've got FDA approval you've got your partner so what's the first stage of your US market entry strategy and what sort of announcements can the market expect to see as you roll that strategy out
0: well step 1 we're very fortunate that we have the Mayo Clinic and, you know obviously they bring a huge brand and credibility to us they've been tremendous partners Uh, in in aligning with us and sharing their learnings of what they've done. So having that partnership, advancing that partnership and doing more with them. We have a clinical trial underway with them to gather more data for home use, uh, which is very exciting. I would say the next part of that is finding uh, additional clinical partners. And that's either a large hospital system or that's a small professional organization or that's a nonprofit. Pretty much every disease condition here in the U.S. has an aligned nonprofit that's sort of the leading voice that influences policy here in the U.S. And so being able to align with those sort of organizations to up our credibility is step one. Um, Making sure that the clinicians buy into this, because if the doctors don't want to use this and they don't think it's good, then it's unlikely that the insurance companies or anybody else sort of in the healthcare environment is able to use it. So continuing to advance the Mayo relationship identifying and strengthening additional clinical relationships, getting this thing in the hands of providers to make sure that, you know, the new product features, the product roadmap aligns with their use cases, getting this in the hands of pregnant women so we can get additional product feedback, making sure that they enjoy the device. And so far uh, that is, that is, it's been a very positive experience for all women. Um, And then it's looking to get into the payer market and that's where you really need the data. You know, and the way I structure this and the way I think about this is you have sort of three levels. You have level one. You want to make sure that there's engagement from both the, payer, sorry, for the provider and the patient, which is a pregnant mom. If they're not using the product, then it really doesn't matter how far you move the needle in terms of metrics. Layer two is looking at the clinical outcomes. Can we test this? Can we show that with deeper engagement, with better technological tools, with better access, can we move the needle on certain key metrics. Now you mentioned before that the U.S. has some of the worst maternal mortality. Well, so what are the key metrics associated with that? We have a higher C-section rate, we have postpartum depression, we have clampsia, and we have preterm birth. If we can demonstrate that by using this tool, by having new care models, deeper engagement, that we can affect those metrics in a positive way, those translate to bottom line savings. And who's gonna want that? Well, that's the insurance companies, that's the employers that are paying for it. So that's sort of the, the, the step-by-step process that we're trying to get to, to do that. Now I will caution people, healthcare is a very risk averse place. You know, the penalty for making a mistake in consumer tech is a broken app. It's not really that big of a deal. The penalty for harming somebody is terrible. And so healthcare just moves at a slightly different pace. They usually need a little bit more data, they need a little bit more convincing, but once you're there, the rate of adoption just accelerates tremendously.
1: Well, Alex, this is a very exciting time for Heramut as you roll out this new care model for expectant mothers. Um, Looking into the future, what are your predictions for how maternity care will change in a world post-COVID-19? I
0: think it's been interesting. You know, I'm still very close with a lot of my colleagues that are in the hospitals and one of the major changes they've had to institute in the hospitals has been the visitor policy. And for certain hospitals that made national news about not allowing the partner to even join the expecting mother, Um, but now they're allowing the partner, but then they have to stay the whole time. The same goes for in-office visits. A lot of uh, large health systems are saying, we don't want patients to come into our office for fear that they might catch the virus as well. They're shifting to a telehealth model. And I think now people are getting comfortable with that. And so I expect in a post-COVID world, I expect that people are going to be much more comfortable using virtual technology to engage in what has historically been a face-to-face conversation. Now, we saw that early on with Mayo Clinic and using that with OBS, and they proved that in sort of a pilot sense. This is sort of a stress test of that. This is really saying, can we do this at scale? And can we do this in a number of different clinical specialties? My personal belief, I actually was just on the phone with one of my mentors who's an orthopedic surgeon, did not believe in telehealth before this. And now, because he's been forced to, he said, it's amazing. I can do it anywhere. I can see a bunch of patients in the convenience of my home. My patients love it. It's really great. So I think it'll happen because the people want it, both the providers and the patients. I think the only rate-limiting step will be the regulatory environment and the payers willing to pay for it. That's historically what happened as we've seen this rapid deregulation because of the circumstances, I'm really hopeful that those are going to stick in place because we're going to see how helpful this is to our entire care system, not just at a state by state level.
1: Well, Alex Radke from Heramed, thank you very much for taking time out to join us on Stock Doc. Uh, good luck with your U.S. market entry strategy and stay safe over there in New York City.
0: Nice, thank you very much. And If you guys ever get a chance to visit New York, make sure you've heard us some with you. They're one of my favorites.